I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're back with another episode of the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. Each episode is divided into four parts. We begin each episode with a case unknown to one of us. We then discuss the five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge pertaining to the weak symptom. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patients' privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. Our topic this week is syncope. Scott, you're the expert of the day. Do you have a case to present to me? Indeed, I do. I'm looking forward to it. Let's hear it. Well, this is a 32-year-old woman who is walking down the street one day and suddenly lost consciousness. Wow, interesting. So I guess hearing that, I would, I would um, start with a couple of thoughts. First of all, I'm a little bit surprised hearing about someone who's just walking, losing consciousness. Um, and this woman is pretty young for syncope. Um, the first thing that I always think about, and I'm sure you will enrich us um, with, is to make sure that it's actually syncope that we're talking about. Um, um, and so my question is, is this really syncope? Well, that's really the perfect first question. Yeah. Um, as you know, we tend to use syncope and loss of consciousness synonymously, and yeah. they're not actually synonymous. And syncope actually refers to the subset of those folks who've lost consciousness because the quote unquote, they've lost cerebral blood flow, which is almost always due to hypotension. Okay. There are other causes of loss of consciousness that are not related to hypotension and should not actually be called syncope. And we'll probably get into later how you determine syncope versus not syncope. I guess my question, and I might set you up here, um, you know, I can see uh, cerebral hypoperfusion leading to syncope. Um, it has to be brief. Right. Right. Yes, otherwise they're dead. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's bad humor, I guess. But, okay, so I'm going to take it that this, woman that this woman had syncope, and the thinking that goes through my mind is that, boy, young person, you know, fainting all of a sudden, vasovagal syn syncope would be by far the first thing that comes to mind. However, that makes no sense in this case. Um, that's usually people standing for a long time, seeing blood. This woman is walking. She's active. So I've kind of ruled that out to begin with. Um, and so the things that would go through my mind is, is this cardiogenic syncope? You know, does this woman have an arrhythmia? Does she have valvular disease? Is there something else wrong? That seems unlikely just given her age, but I guess it's possible. And the other thing would be hypotension. Is she hypotensive? Again, that wouldn't really make great sense with her just walking around, but who knows? So tell me what, what, what else happened with this lady? Well, I think just to emphasize your point, it really was syncopal. She had abrupt, she had a rapid return of consciousness, which argues against the other non-syncopal causes. Right. Um, and I think your other point about rapidly deciding it's not vasovagal syncope is spot on because she was walking. And as I just want to emphasize that people often will make the mistake of calling something vasovagal syncope when it's not. And the history of her walking along and passing out without a trigger and a prodrome would be incredibly atypical. Okay. So um, she uh, went to the ground and her husband started calling around for help and she woke up quickly to see him calling around for help and the next thing she knows she was transported by an ambulance to the hospital. Okay. 
Um, so I think the things which, which are notable for me in that is that it does certainly sound short. Um, it sounds like she regained consciousness and it sounds like she was pretty aware. She remembers being in the ambulance, all that stuff. Right, exactly. Okay. And so as we'll talk about later, I think um, that makes uh, things like seizures and other causes less likely because it sounds like she came right to. Um, so I guess maybe I'll put myself in the, um, in the seat of the emergency room doc um, right now. What I'd be really interested in is I'd love to hear what her heart sounds like, um, hear if she's got terrible aortic stenosis. I'd like to know what her vital signs are. Um, is she tachycardic? Is she bradycardic when she comes in? I'd love to know orthostatics. Um, and I'd love to know if there are any other symptoms, I guess. You know, I, I sort of brushed off orthostasis, which I really kind of doubt this is. Um, but if it was, I guess I'd want to know, you know, is she having abdominal pain? Um, you know, is she having thigh pain? Has she been having melena? Is there something that would make me think that's a possibility? Great. So those are incredibly important points. So her vital signs when she arrived in the emergency room were stable. Her blood pressure is about 130 over 85. It didn't really change from standing to sitting and her pulse was about 92 and regular. Her O2 sat was normal and she was afebrile. Can I call you on something like I would call a um, medical student presenting to me? Of course. You can't say her vital signs are stable when you have one, <laughs> one reading, right? Fair enough. I All think right. you mean that they're normal. I did mean that they're normal. Thank you for that uh, clarification, <laughs> and, and uh, that's the spot on. Um, and uh, orthostatics, did you tell me? I did. There was no change. Okay, great. And I did not tell you her cardiac exam that you asked for. Yes. Her pulse was regular rate and rhythm, and she did not have any significant murmurs, gallops, or rubs. Okay. And is there anything else she's complaining about? Palpitations, chest pain? Did she know this was coming on? She didn't complain of palpitations or chest pain. She did notice before she lost consciousness that she was short of breath when she was walking. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, that's an important piece of information. It's certainly not something that I often think of when I think about syncope, but I guess hearing that would make me think of a couple of things. Um, I guess that pushes arrhythmia a little bit higher on the list. I could certainly imagine that if she was tachycardic and maybe someone who didn't feel that much, um, she would, um, um, that would certainly make her short of breath. The other things would be other um, abnormalities which would decrease cerebral perfusion. I usually think of that as being outflow, but I guess it could be, I guess it could be um, a preload compromise. And pulmonary embolism would come to mind then. So I guess what I would ask you is, um, any risk factors for PE? Well, there's, she's never had a prior pulmonary embolism okay. um, or DVT. She has not had a family history of that. She's not on any um, oral birth control pills. Okay. She has recently flown from uh, Germany to the United States okay. on a trip. Okay, so there's something in mind there that I would at least think about. Um, should we go on with further workup now, or should we move on to some of your key points for syncope? Well, I think it's worth reviewing the key points while we're here. And I think the first key point is the one that we've both emphasized already, which is the first step is to really distinguish whether it's syncope or not. And that distinction uh, is usually pretty easy. If it's abrupt in onset, 
um, if it's short in duration and a patient recovers rapidly without any help like sugars, etc., that really suggests syncope. And if those are not true, like a prolonged recovery, you ask a very good question, does she remember the ambulance, right? If she doesn't, then you think of the non-syncopal causes such as seizures and hypoglycemia. So that's really the first take-home point. And okay. you rapidly zeroed in on this being syncope appropriately. Okay, so let me stop you for a second. Um, since we're putting aside a lot of things that people often describe as syncope that are not syncope, I think you just mentioned hypoglycemia, you mentioned seizures. Um, certainly we see a lot of people with intoxication who you know, sort of pass out drunk and then wake up later. Sure. Um, are there other common things that we should note? Well, uh, some of the things are a little bit less common. Massive subarachnoid hemorrhage. Great. Patients will sometimes wake up from massive stroke. It does Great. have to be a pretty massive stroke to make you lose consciousness. Uh, and head trauma, of course. Great. Okay. Those are important things to think about. Okay. So number one, um, as, far as, as far as key points here, um, seem to be Make sure this is actually syncope, and you define syncope well as a as a rapid loss of consciousness with with rapid regaining of consciousness related to cerebral hypoperfusion. So, what's next? The next one is to determine the type of syncope. There are really three categories of syncope: okay. um, cardiac syncope, uh, which is life threatening. Um, reflex syncope, of which the most common is vasovagal syncope, the most common cause of syncope, and finally orthostatic syncope. Okay. Um, so vasovagal syncope, um, I will talk about a little bit when we get to the pet peeves, um, but that is something that's that's almost a let's let's say a reflex diagnosis. Um, how do you think about vasovagal syncope? What is vasovagal syncope? So vasovagal syncope is simply when the vagus nerve is triggered and it causes two things simultaneously: bradycardia and vasodilatation, and both drop your blood pressure. But it needs to be triggered. And so typically patients are going to have a, um, some emotional trigger, such as seeing blood, or prolonged standing, which can trigger the vagus nerve to fire. Um, typically there's a prodrome, so they may feel abdominal discomfort, sweaty, uncomfortable, queasy feeling, and then typically they have no cardiac clues. Got it, got it. I have to tell a great vasovagal syncope story. Um, years and years ago, my wife and I collected antique fans, okay, which didn't have any sort of safety things. Okay. And we had some friends over on a very hot, you know, Chicago summer night. And we actually, we geared up one of our um, antique fans. And my wife, as she was placing it, slipped her hand, stuck her hand into the blade, and not only cut her hand, but splashed blood all over the wall. And she went out like a light. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sure she didn't find that very funny. I think actually. that would be the definition of those. <laughs> I think that's different. pretty good. Okay. Um, so we've talked uh, already about making sure it's syncope and then really breaking it down into these three important kinds of syncope, vasovagal, orthostatic, and uh, cardiac. What comes next? What's number three? The third uh, point is that um, we have to consider we have to know when to consider cardiac syncope okay. because it's the type of syncope that can kill you. Sure. Um, and when we should think about that is actually two issues. One is they have risk factors, symptoms, or signs of cardiac disease, right. of course. But the other is if it's not orthostatic and it's not reflex syncope, it is cardiac syncope. And sometimes you get there because <laughs> you say, boy, this isn't orthostatic and it's not reflex, even though it didn't occur to me that it was cardiac syncope. In fact, it must be. Uh, that, that is a terrific point. So if you're seeing a patient who you're absolutely sure has had syncope and you say, boy, this is 
really atypical for vasovagal syncope. I can't make that diagnosis. And the person is not orthostatic when you're seeing them. You're basically saying, well, there's a high likelihood that this is cardiogenic syncope, and therefore that person needs an evaluation urgently? Urgently and to be admitted. So okay. that's a key point. Got it, got it. And I think a point that, I mean, I've certainly seen people make this mistake, right? Where Absolutely. they say this might be vasovagal syncope and discharge the person, send them home, recognizing that maybe this was a potentially lethal arrhythmia. Exactly. And they may lose the opportunity to save their life. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the next one. So the fourth key point is if it's cardiac syncope, you really need to admit and evaluate the patient, which we just said. And the final one is if it is orthostatic syncope, you have to figure out the cause of that orthostatic syncope. Right. Great, great point. So actually, if you're in the outpatient setting, you know, in an urgent care, and you see someone with orthostatic syncope, you certainly might be reassured that it's not cardiogenic syncope, which is terrible. Um, but certainly there is a long list of terrible things which can cause orthostasis. And so maybe syncope is not the big issue, but their ruptured AAA might be the Exactly. And that would be bad to miss. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the understatement of the day. Okay, so we have our five key points then. And so let's get back to the case. Um, when we were talking about the case originally, we had a 32-year-old woman, syncopal episode, out walking with her um, husband in the emergency room. She's got normal vital signs, normal orthostatics, um, a normal cardiac exam. And the only interesting part of her history is that uh, she recalls being short of breath, walking prior to the event, um, we talked a little bit about pulmonary embolism, not a common cause of syncope, but being a possibility here. And the woman at least has a risk factor um, with a recent, uh, with recent European travel. Um, so I guess from my point of view, if I was the managing physician right now, um, I would start with um, routine blood tests. I try to stay away from saying routine blood tests, but I would love to see electrolytes in this woman as, you know, I'm still, I guess, thinking arrhythmia. Um, I'd love to see a CBC uh, as a hint about blood loss, though, of course, she's not orthostatic arguing against acute blood loss, which would be important here. Um, and to be honest with you, if those are normal and I don't have a clue, then I think PE ends up being pretty high on my list, then I would go down that track. Um, where are we? What, what went on with her? Well, um, her CBC was normal, although I have to point out that even if it's acute hemorrhage, as you know, the hemoglobin can be normal until it's been serially diluted by intake of fluid, either oral or IV. Right. Uh, even a massive hemorrhage can be normal. And her electrolytes were normal. <laughs> and you are kind of missing a key diagnostic ah, test here uh, that you would do routinely. Oh, of course. She should have an EKG. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I, I guess I think of that as being automatic. So, yes, let me hear her about her EKG. Right. And, and th th that is a point worth making, that the EKG in essentially every syncopal person, one can even argue when it looks like vasovagal syncope to do an electrolyte. Cardiogram. There's no and and what we're looking for there, you know, we're unlikely to see an arrhythmia at the time when this woman is there uh, with a normal heart rate, a regular rhythm. Um, but we're what we're looking for are signs of 
um, either underlying cardiovascular disease, Wolf Parkinson White, um, anything that would that would put her at higher risk for cardiogenic syncope. That's exactly right. You're not going to usually make the diagnosis, but if it's abnormal, it's a clue. Right. Um, and it's worth emphasizing something you said, which is that the arrhythmias, if patients have had them, are often gone when they show up. Oh, so they yes. had an arrhythmia, they lost consciousness, the arrhythmia aborted on its own, and they show up and it's fine, right. but it doesn't rule it out. So her EKG showed normal sinus rhythm, no acute SCT wave changes, normal PR interval, uh, no signs of an accessory pathway, no acute changes. Great. So that's important, makes her, makes her chance of underlying cardiovascular disease less likely, though certainly doesn't rule it out. And uh, I, hope I'm, I hope I'm not going down the wrong track with PE because I've been, become sort of obsessed with it. Um, um, the fact that there are no signs of right heart strain on the EKG does absolutely nothing um, towards ruling out that diagnosis. And I guess you and I will say over and over again that the absence of signs or symptoms does not rule out a disease. Absolutely true. Would you like to just repeat that? The absence of <laughs> signs and symptoms never rules out a disease. The data shows that overwhelmingly. They can be very helpful when there, but meaningless when absent. Shall we talk about that paper that we wrote that we still haven't gotten published? <laughs> no, I don't think so. That'd be very painful. Okay. Um, so I guess if I was managing this woman right now, I would say, boy, the only diagnosis that I'm thinking about really is pulmonary embolism. I would skip the D-dimer because I think if that was negative, I wouldn't even, uh, I would still evaluate her. I would say she needs a, um, a chest CT to rule out pulmonary embolism. If that's positive, I need to treat that. If that's negative, I would admit her with the idea that she's got cardiogenic syncope that I just haven't been smart enough or able to make the diagnosis and she needs further evaluation. Exactly. So that was their thought as well in the emergency room. And they did do a CT scan, which remarkably enough showed multiple large segmental pulmonary emboli wow. distributed bilaterally. Wow. I guess we should underline that not only am I brilliant for coming up with the diagnosis, <laughs> but that um, this is not a common cause of syncope. No, but actually it's more common than it's often given credit is for. Right? So if you look at patients who've been admitted for syncope, 17% yeah. of them were actually diagnosed with pulmonary embolism. So in the patients who are suspected of having cardiac syncope where the etiology is not clear, it should be part of the workup. That's terrific. That's good to underline. And I, and I guess... I guess the people who you work that up in are those who you don't have another clear diagnosis. Exactly. Okay. Good, good. Wow, that's a really interesting case. How did she do? She did well. It's worth pointing out that PE and syncope actually means there has to be massive pulmonary embolism. Right, right. And one of the shocking things about patients is if they don't die from the massive pulmonary embolism, they survive to be in the hospital. Presumably what's happened is the pulmonary embolism that was blocking the right-sided pulmonary blood flow has now fractured and gone to other parts of the lung, which restores circulation to the left heart yeah. so that blood pressure comes back up. So they often look relatively well, and actually a quarter of such patients had no other symptoms of pulmonary embolism. Wow. But if you do an echo, 90% of them actually have signs of right ventricular dysfunction because it was a massive PE. Okay. So she did well. She was treated with thrombolytic therapy. Uh, she had a um, hypercoagulable workup and was going to be treated for a minimum of six months and potentially long term. Great. That, that, that's a really interesting point, that to cause syncope, these need to be very large pulmonary embolism, emboli, at least initially. And so many of these people, I assume, are going to be candidates for thrombolysis. 
Well, potentially, as you know, if they're still in uh, hemodynamic shock, sure. absolutely. Sure. Um, the, since she was no longer in uh, hemodynamically compromised, she would be treated with standard, you know, anticoagulant therapy. Right. Unless there's significant right-sided uh, abnormalities. Okay, well, let's um, move on to the last part of our podcast, which is always when we talk about fingerprints, uh, common misperceptions, uh, misconceptions, sorry, pet peeves, and clinical pearls. Um, uh, Scott, why did you start with some of the fingerprints? Well, one of them is there are certain fingerprints for seizures. Um, they can uh, lateral tongue laceration and abnormal movements before someone loses consciousness. Often a seizure generalizes, and in the brief period of time before it generalizes, patients may act strange. They may have head turning, unusual posturing, and all of those have likelihood ratios of 12 or more, strongly suggesting uh, a seizure. Wow, interesting. So those are those are clearly findings that you'd love to have witnesses to be able to talk to. Sure. Since if you were with the patient alone, you might not get any of that. Um, I'll throw out, um, we're, we're sort of saying, yours are, okay, seizures, things that are not syncope. Mine would be for vasovagal syncope, um, fingerprints, high positive likelihood ratios, are if the person tells you that before their syncope, they were standing for a long period of time, they had abdominal discomfort, or if it was before a shot, um, an IV placement, a blood draw, and the likelihood ratios for those are generally in the seven to nine range. So also really diagnostic. Great. Um, let's move on to where people mess up. You have any uh, common misconceptions that you um, that I you think about? I do. The, one of the most common misconceptions I've seen over the decades is actually being uh, seeing. Uh, various physicians order carotid ultrasounds to look for carotid stenosis as a cause of syncope. And it turns out that you have to have global cerebral hypoperfusion to pass out. So if you block one carotid, you right. might have a TIA, you might have a stroke, you might right. have nothing, but syncope is not part of it. And you right. should stop ordering those. Right. Ah, that, I'm with you on that. That, that drives me crazy. Um, there's actually, there's a terrific article uh, from a few years ago um, uh, in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, I believe, they have a series called Things We Do For No Reason. And I think the actually first article in their series was about carotid dopplers for syncope. Um, and I never understand, you know, is that being done because people don't know, because people are just scared of missing anything, or is it just essentially graft and they're trying to like take money from Medicare? Well, I hope it's that graft. I think misconceptions are often passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, yeah true, true. <laughs> do, you, do you have one? Like like gene mutations, right? Um, yeah. So I think mine is is actually probably something that you already mentioned is is that very often um, people use the CBC to exclude acute hemorrhage. We may have actually talked about this also in the um, abdominal pain podcast. It's something that obviously both of us are a little bit hung up on. Um, so. You know, if someone is profoundly orthostatic, but their hemoglobin is 14, um, they have just bled and, and, and the CBC does nothing to rule it out. I guess if someone is not orthostatic and has a normal CBC, that makes blood loss very uncommon. Agreed. Um, so how about pet peeves? How about things that, that just bug you? Well, I was going to mention carotid dopplers, but I think I've emphasized that <laughs> enough. So I think another thing that bugs me is patients who haven't had syncope by history and are worked up for syncope. So the patient who loses consciousness and doesn't remember the ambulance ride, doesn't remember how they got to the hospital, that really suggests another process. Sure. And so not paying attention to that is really a problem. 
seems like those people's syncope workup would probably be negative. It would probably be negative, and they missed the seizure and potentially the tumor that was causing the seizure. Or they actually find something, the person gets treated for something completely different, and they haven't treated the underlying problem. Right. Um, My pet peeve is is probably... um, the idea that everybody who faints has vasovagal syncope. And, um, you know, it's, it's very common. It's an easy diagnosis to make. It's benign, so sort of it requires, you know, no further evaluation. And I think, therefore, it's a tempting um, diagnosis to make. But as we talked about, there are clear fingerprints. Um, there are things that should really make you think about vasovagal syncope. And if those are lacking, you should really think hard about, about other but other things. I think we should call that the square peg round hole phenomenon, yeah. where people take a disease they know and the patient doesn't fit it at all, but they decide that's what's wrong. And so even though it doesn't fit, they try to push it through and they make terrible mistakes. It's so interesting. That comes up so frequently. I think about that with BPPV, right. BPPV and vertigo. Certainly, you know, it's been said for generations that everything that wheezes is not asthma. Right. Right. Tension headaches. And a right. 60 year old who comes in with new headaches, you know, oh, it's a tension headache. That's not a tension headache. <laughs> um, so maybe that should be a new category for future podcasts. Right. Um, so let's, um, let's alternate with some clinical pearls before we wrap it up here. What are things that you want people to remember? Well, one that I already mentioned, that arrhythmias may have resolved. It's tempting when the patient comes in in normal sinus rhythm to assume that they didn't have an arrhythmia, and that just may not be the case. Right. I'll underline something that you said for, for one of mine, is that if you have a patient in the emergency room who cannot remember how they got there, okay, that's probably not syncope. And it's very likely to be seizure, actually, because the post-ictal state has carried them through from the end of their seizure until they've arrived in the emergency room. Um, I guess the other pearl I've already stated, which was to think about pulmonary embolism in these cases. It's not something that rapidly comes to mind, but if you have uh, someone who comes in with clearly syncope and you think it's cardiac and you're scratching your head and their echocardiogram is normal and you don't know, you should really evaluate them for that. Okay. And I'm also going to beat a dead horse here, but maybe (laughs) from another perspective. Um, We talked about the fact that a normal hemoglobin doesn't rule out acute blood loss. The other thing that doesn't rule out acute blood loss, maybe with a normal hemoglobin, is a normal supine blood pressure. Um, There are plenty of people, often young healthy people, who if they're lying down will have a perfectly normal blood pressure or a lowish blood pressure, which might just go along with being young and healthy. But if you stand that person up, you know, their blood pressure drops and maybe they have another syncopal event. Um, So you have to, have to, have to order orthostatics if you're considering orthostatic hypertension as a cause of syncope. Well, I couldn't have said that better myself. So I think that concludes the pearls that I had. Do you have any others you want to add? No, that's good for me. Um, I think there are a few things that nobody will leave this podcast forgetting. (laughs) So we hope you found this episode of the Symptom Diagnosis podcast useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis, an evidence-based guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print through all the usual places and also available and fully searchable via the Access Medicine website available worldwide from McGraw-Hill and also available on your iPhone or other handheld device. Thank you very much. Thank you. The music for the S2D podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Mm-hmm.